You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. Hi, welcome to Culturally Determined on Blogging Heads TV. I'm your host, Arya Cohen-Wade, and my guest today is Ruth Graham. Uh, Ruth, could you introduce yourself? Yes. Hi, I'm a staff writer at Slate Magazine. Um, thank you so much for coming on today. Um, so there's two things we're going to be talking about. Um, one is something that you wrote that went viral um, within the last week or so, and that was about uh, George H.W. Bush uh, and his – well, it's really more about his dog, his service dog. Yeah, I was going to uh, say. I, I insist that it's actually not about George H.W. Bush, but fair enough. Right. So, But the dog is known as Sully H.W. Bush to some. Mm-hmm. Um, but we'll put that – that'll be – and this went massively viral and people went crazy about this article, so we'll, but we'll leave that towards the end. Uh, but the main thing I wanted to talk to you about – is um, a limited uh, podcast podcast series that you did um, for Slate uh, called Standoff, yep. and it's about uh, the Ruby Ridge incident and its causes and aftermaths. Um, so, uh, I encourage everyone to listen to this. Is it? It's just it's four episodes, right? Yeah, four episodes. Yeah, um, each just about a half hour, so it's it's manageable. Yeah, right. So it's um it's really it's really good. It's really w- well made. Um, I learned a lot from it. Uh, the this period of history is, was a little obscure to me. I, I was like nine or ten years old when this happened, and I kind of rem- I remember the Branch Davidian stuff happening, but I didn't really uh, remember this um, beyond the bare details. And yeah, it's um it's uh, an important <laughs> event, and you, you did a really good job. Capturing it in you know a serialized podcast form, um, so I guess my first question is, what drew you to uh, this this story? Yeah, I was kind of the same way you were. I guess I was twelve years old when Ruby Ridge happened, and was sort of you know dimly aware of it, much more aware of Waco, which actually um, happened. The the end of the standoff in Waco happened just a few days into the trial of uh, the sort of main Ruby Ridge trial, which is interesting. And it, it, it certainly kind of took over. Um, uh, it, it was a much bigger event. So Ruby Ridge got <laughs> eclipsed a little more. Yeah. my cat. Um, one of my cats is making a cameo appearance as she often does. <laughs> Um, by that event. So, um, yeah, I, I was like intrigued to return to it. It's a story that had a thread of religion, um, and religious extremism and I'm a religion reporter primarily. So I was interested in that. I was interested in the way that this is a story that really, I think a, a lot of people have mostly forgotten, but has not been forgotten on kind of the fringes of the far right. So mm-hmm. it's kind of lasting influence in that scene, um, was interesting to me. And then it's also just a really, you know, when we were thinking about doing some kind of limited series podcast, you know, it's an incredibly dramatic event squeezed into, you know, the main action, the main standoff was like 11 days. So it felt sort of like the right uh, size event in terms of actually, uh, you know, telling the narrative and being able to do the narrative in a in a limited way. So um, those are the main things that drew me to it. But yeah, it just felt really with white supremacism and nationalism and all of this in the news right now, it felt like a, it felt like the right moment to look back at a story like this. Mm-hmm. Um, so for people who either are unaware of the story or maybe don't remember it super well, can you give a brief summary of what happened at Ruby Ridge? Yeah. So it, it mainly um, centers on this family, the Weaver family is a guy named Randy Weaver and his wife, Vicki. They were both from, 
Iowa, and they had moved to Idaho in the early 80s with their family. Um, they'd been getting more and more drawn into kind of apocalyptic theology. They were survivalists, and they were sort of getting more and more um, into those worlds, I guess, into that ideology. So they eventually moved to this mountaintop in Idaho where um, you know, they had no power and, you know, again, like doing sort of survivalist activity. And they were on the fringes of the white nationalist movement, which happened to be really on the rise in that um, area at the time. So they were, I think, about an hour from the Aryan Nations compound and they attended a few big events there. It seemed like more, I mean, they were definitely comfortable there, but it was almost more of a social event for them. Um, so again, kind of on the fringes of this movement. And then Randy Weaver befriends a guy there who turns out to be an informant for the ATF. Um, the whole white nationalist scene out there is just swarming with overlapping federal informants from different agencies, not always in communication with each other. Um, and so anyway, he, he meets up with this guy who turns out to be an ATF informant and ends up selling him two sawed off shotguns. A warrant is out for his, this was all taped, um, you know, caught on tape. He's, it's pretty clear, it's pretty clear that he, it is very clear that he actually did this. Um, but instead of just submitting, and then I should say, so then the ATF approaches him and offers to let him be an informant. And they're thinking, we'll just um, flip this guy and be able to use him to get bigger fish. Because he was not like a big, important target or a mover and a shaker in any way. Mm -hmm. um, but because of his kind of apocalyptic theology and his anti-government paranoia and all of this, um, the offer to become an informant, he just refuses it. And he retreats to his... Um, you know, cabin with his family and doesn't come down. So there's the marshal service then gets involved. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm trying to tell this in a short way, but it's actually a complicated story. It, yeah, it is. Full, the full, so the if you want the full story, you, you know, check out the podcast. trying to, um, you know, find a way to peacefully arrest him over the course of about a year and a half. Um, but eventually it, uh, it, it erupts into violence when the, the, there are six marshals who are kind of, um, crawling around the property, try, trying to sort of figure out their next move. And they get into a confrontation with the Weavers, 14 year old son, a family friend who's living with them. And a, so a marshal ends up dead. That boy ends up dead. And Kevin Harris, the family friend ends up shot. Um, the FBI arrives on the scene coming in cold. I mean, they haven't been working on the case and there's a ton of misinformation about how dangerous the Weaver family is. So the FBI has this idea that they're, um, you know, that the, property is booby trapped and that these are like very, very dangerous white nationalists. So the FBI arrives and then the next day an FBI sniper shoots Vicki Weaver, um, Randy's wife. <clears throat> and then the standoff drags on and, and a, kills her and kills her. Yes. Yeah. And kills her. Yep. Yeah. Um, and the standoff drags on for another nine or so days. And then uh, Randy surrenders and it, you know, it, it ends peace, peacefully after that point, but it's just a major, I don't want to reduce it to like a PR debacle because people lost their lives too, but it just becomes a major, you know, there are protesters, anti-government protesters, all kinds of protesters kind of descend on the scene and it becomes like a big kind of rallying cry, I guess, for all different kinds of branches of fringes of the far right. Right. And um, yeah, so there's lots of uh, uh, places we can go with this. So, 
I mean, one, <laughs> one is like just a massive number of kind of, I guess, you know, in any disaster, there's a lot of mistakes, but the people, like the government, the government made a lot of mistakes. The weavers acted in a number of stupid ways. Um, and they made a number of mistakes as well. And, uh, two, you know, the, uh, Vicky Weaver and her son were both killed and one U.S. Marshal was killed. Um, like what, what do you think were the key moments when this like changed from something that could have ended peacefully to something that turned that was like a disaster? Yeah, it's so, um, it's kind of heartbreaking to look back on it and see how many different inflection points there were and how many I, in the first episode we really talk about, and the thing I, the thing I keep coming back to is just that both sides of this conflict had this kind of enemy in mind the whole time and almost like wanted to find this kind of enemy um, and then sort of manifested it. So the weavers had this anti-government paranoia that, sort of because of their own actions, they, you know, because if Randy, had, if Randy had just surrendered after the gun sale, um, it was a first offense, like he had no criminal record. Um, I don't want to be dismissive of the impact that would have had on his life, but it certainly would have been less than his son and wife being killed. So that's a key one. Um, the government, um, it's a little bit hard to talk about them as one entity because the FBI came in and I think made probably the most serious mistakes. The the local marshal service um, and the ATF, I think were, you know, mostly trying to kind of handle this sensitively and with some kind of awareness of who they were dealing with. And then the FBI came in and really, um, you know, it's, it's really hard to understand what was going on with that sniper shot at, at Vicki Weaver. Um, and you know, after this and after Waco, you do see a different approach to standoff. So it's, it's a little bit hard to say like what exact moment for the government was, was like, was the thing that made it all go wrong, but just the, the amount of, um, uh, they just came in with like all guns blazing basically. Um, and seems like it escalated in a way that it, it didn't need to with, with a family like this. So. Yeah, I, I just had the thought that they, um, you know, each side so had this misapprehension of the other side, as you said, but mm-hmm. in a way, the um, they kind of uh, proved, like, they became the caricature of themselves that they didn't yeah. want to be, yeah. um, you know, the, the weavers acting uh, logically, having these crazy beliefs, meaning they can't just put their hands up and walk down the hill. You know, we can talk a little bit more about what... Uh, their belief system was exactly, uh, but also like the the FBI thinking, you know, th- thinking that they were rel- religious or racial radicals, and then they you know they kind of became that in a way, mm-hmm. and then the the Weavers thinking that the government was uh, evil and oppressive and was going to uh, destroy them, and uh, that kind of kind of did happen. So yeah. it's mm-hmm. it's like uh, you know there's like double tragedies, on, yeah. uh, on each side. Yeah, yeah. Although we hold the government to higher standards, right? Um, right. So, I mean, that's kind of what I come back to because even though I think Randy's and the, the Weaver's choices were more obvious and their mistakes were more obvious, but I also think, yeah, we, we hold the government to a higher standard than that. Right. Um, yeah. So why don't we, yeah, why don't we go to what were their beliefs in particular and yeah. how did that lead them to take these actions that they did? They were involved with... Um, a kind of toxic 
offshoot of um, a, a, a toxic like sect of Christianity called Christian identity, um, which I mean, the theology is really complex, but it's basically like a white supremacist version of Christianity. Um, and that kind of fueled their separatist beliefs and their ideas about the white family. Um, so that was their theology. Um, the people I spoke to who knew them described them as not necessarily super political. Um, but, but again, this like anti-government paranoia, this belief that the government would come for them. That's a, a little bit tied up with Christian identity, or at least there's a lot of overlap there with Christian identity. Um, uh, but yeah, basically like separatists, survivalists, um, and white, white nationalists. Although again, they're at the fringe of that movement. They're not, they're not leaders there. They're hangers on. Mm-hmm. Um, so are, are they like, it seems like they were essentially people who wanted to be left alone. They wanted uh, to live in like the most isolated place possible. And, uh, doesn't seem like <laughs> if you like, don't bother them, they're not going to be a threat to anybody. But he happened to do this thing selling us. Did he saw off the shotguns himself? He, yeah, he sawed off the shotguns himself and, and promised he could do more. Um, and that was, you know, again, the, the most forgiving read of that is that they were really in a financial crunch at that point. I mean, they were just scraping by at every um, point. And this guy offered him, you know, I forget it was going to be like 350 bucks a, um, or maybe 450 for the for the two of them. Um, uh, but, yeah, I mean, I. I always, I'm a little conflicted over how to think about that idea that they just wanted to be left alone because, of course, that's what they said. That became the refrain, um, and it's still the refrain when people who are sympathetic talk to them. But, you know, it's pretty easy to, to be left alone if you don't saw off a shotgun and sell it to a federal informant and uh, don't react that way when you're arrested for doing something. It, it, you know, I don't know. So I'm, there, there's a little bit of almost eagerness for conflict in, in these kinds of worlds that, you know, it's people who spend a lot of time talking about how they want to be left alone, but also making these moves that make it unlikely that they will be left alone. So I, it's hard for me to quite know how to read that. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Um, so well, one thing that was surprising to me, uh, only knowing the outlines of the story uh, beforehand was that uh, Vicki Weaver was really the kind of like ideological, um, you know, uh, I was going to say like fire hydrant, but like she was the, she was the source of ideological fervor in the family. And it kind of seemed like Randy was more like he agreed with it, but he was kind of just like along for the ride. Yeah. Yeah. I think that Vicky was kind of the, the reader and the one who was developing a lot of the family's, you know, particular rules for, you know, at times like the, girls and the, and Vicky would only wear long skirts or say that, you know, for a while they didn't want any photography in the house because that was associated with like graven images. And she was the one kind of developing those strictures. And Randy was the talker. He was a pretty social guy. I mean, he like led a Bible study at times and um, he was kind of out and about. He ran for sheriff in, in Idaho at one point. Um, and he actually, this is so intriguing. I, I wish that he had agreed to talk to me for the series, but, um, now if there are these little, you can find videos of him doing little interviews on YouTube at different places over the years. And he, he seems to identify now as an atheist, hmm. um, which is really interesting to me. And at, at times the family wouldn't have described, they didn't describe themselves as Christians all the time because that 
they rejected a lot of like mainstream churches. There's all this like complex language stuff, but it seems like he's not a believer in anything anymore, which is interesting. And I kind of wonder, I mean, he hasn't had her, so yeah. Yeah. But, but then it became, you know, he became the, like he became the face of the family and he, yep. well, he, well, obviously they couldn't put uh, Vicky on trial because she had been killed, okay. uh, but he was the one who was put on trial afterwards. And yeah, when it did seem like, you know, she was, <laughs> she was a lot more yeah. energetic about these yeah. ideas than, than you would think, um, with. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. They, they were definitely at the very least both in it. Um, and he happened to be the one that made the sale and then she was killed. So those two things made him really the face of it. But in some ways she was a more, um, passionate and articulate. I get the sense, um, you know, the one who, who really had the, was more driven in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so the, the first, so the first violent incident, um, was, is contested what, uh, what happened, but it ended up with a U.S. Marshal, the 14-year-old boy, dead, and then a family friend who was there as well, injured. Um, so there was, you know, an exchange of gunfire, and I guess the the Weavers contend that um, the Marshal was killed by another Marshal, and that they the family They've didn't actually... They, they have floated that, yeah. It, it's it's um, really complicated to track because both parties have, like, kind of floated different ideas of what might have happened over the years, and there's really no definitive. I mean, it, it, it seems like they kind of all started shooting almost at once. Um, there was it, it started when the Weaver's dog got a scent of the marshals. Um, so one scenario that seems pretty likely to me is that one of the marshals shot the dog to, you know, stop the dog from barking. And then, um, and then Sammy shot at the marshals and the marshal shot and it went from there, but it all happened very, very quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so then after that happened, it became more of like a, a siege. So is that when the feds, yeah. the feds came in? Yeah, exactly. So the FBI flew in like that night and, and immediately, you know, took over the investigation. They take, they take over the scene and, um, it, it's interesting talking to some other parties who had been working to, for the case for a long time and really hearing them bristle at the, the way the FBI kind of bigfoots their way around um, uh, and kind of stomps on other agencies. But yeah, so that's the point where the FBI got involved. And then you have this guy whose name you're going to have to say because I can't remember it, but it's, it begins with Lon. And, yeah, Lon Horiuchi. Yeah. Right. Um, so he is a... Uh, sniper with the ATF or with the FBI? He's with the FBI. Yeah, okay. the, the hostage rescue team, which is this elite, you know, subgroup within the FBI on, you know, situations like this. So, yeah. So he's uh, the one who... He actually ended up at Waco, too. Right. Um, That's a weird which detail. really incredible. And Timothy McVeigh got kind of fixated on him and would go around to gun shows. They had, they had, he had his name and address somehow and would pass out cards with his name and address, basically, you know, seemingly trying to goad someone into assassinating Horiuchi. So, um, but yeah, he's the one who shoots, who shoots Vicky Weaver. Yeah. And, uh, since I, you, you say his name so many times and I was like, Lon Horiuchi, Lon Horiuchi, who, what is this person? <laughs> who is he? Uh, so I Googled him and if you, the only image seems to be like, Taken when he was like 21 in the army or something yeah. like that. So I guess this guy has gone underground. I think he is off the grid. I mean, we did our best to find him, but I, you know, I, he is long. He's long gone. I think I, I'm sure for his own safety. Yeah. Right. So, so he and it's contested uh, what exactly happened, but he um, shoots 
uh, Vicky Weaver killing her. She's holding uh, the her infant uh, child in her arms when this happens. So this is very, very bad. Um, and and then it kind of becomes like you know the the, yeah. the family like kind of has a, a rightful suspicion that they're all going to be killed at any moment. Right. So they like don't want to they don't want to negotiate. They're like crawling around on the floor. Like the body is uh, of the mother is like left in the house uh, under a sheet, and it just seems like. Um, and the FBI claims they don't know that she was killed for another. I'm forgetting now, but you know, at least four or five days. Um, so anyway, that, that's part of it too. Is that they're trying to negotiate? They're like shouting through a bullhorn and trying all this stuff and saying like, "Talk to Vicky, put Vicky on," it, you know, like all of this stuff, at which the family receives as like taunting them. But in mm-hmm. fact, they don't know that she's been killed, and yeah, right. And they're probably thinking, "Let's talk to the." woman and mother, right. she'll be the sensible one in this situation. Um, she's dead, but also she was the more fervently yeah. ideological anti-government one. Um, so how, so how arguably like the leader of the family. So you, you can kind of see the logic there you know, either way. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, well, one, one aspect that you, well, when we say, why does, how does this, how does it ultimately resolve? How does the crisis resolve? Yeah. So they, the, FBI's um, negotiating team tries all these different approaches. They fly in Randy's sister and they're, they're trying all this stuff. The, the, the thing that eventually works is this guy named Bo Greitz arrives on the scene. He's running for president on the populist party ticket, which had previously run David, um, David Duke. And he's kind of this right wing grifter. Um, and, Anyway, listen to the episode. It's he's like a fascinating character who's his own complete thing. I could I could spend so much time. Yeah, I I never heard of him before, but um, but he shows up on the scene. Kind of kind of seems like he smells a publicity opportunity, basically. Um, and FBI is like, well, what the hell? Like, we might as well. Like, nothing else we've tried has worked. Let's let's let him try to negotiate. Um, and it it works. So Randy lets Bogrites into the house, um, talks with him, and then you know over the course of a few days, basically Bogrites and there are a few other kind of trusted people that are allowed into the into the house and uh, negotiates for for Randy and Kevin, who are the two guys who are wanted for everyone to come out of the house peacefully and surrender. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's what happens after it's uh it's eleven days total. So. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you talked to a guy who was a, a television television journalist, or was he a radio journalist? Uh, John Allison. Yeah. Yeah, he he was TV. Yep. So there's, it's kind of implied that like, absent this guy who was reporting on the story, like the um, or, or wait, am I thinking about the newspaper I article? I think that's Bill Moreland you're thinking of, and he was a newspaper reporter. Okay, this is what He's I'm thinking of. Who in the spring had reported on it, and yeah, so there's an implication that like. Absent media reports on this story, it would have just fizzled out on its own and not attracted so much so much attention. Yeah, I I don't I I tried to not say that so explicitly because who knows? But enough people told us that Bill Moreland wrote this front page story on what at the time was kind of just this simmering. You know, it was a standoff insofar as Randy was hiding in the house and not coming down and the ATF wanted to capture him, but didn't want to approach the house, but it certainly wasn't something where, you know, the house was surrounded by snipers yet. So Moreland sort of got wind of this and wrote this front page story in the spring of 1992. And it was suggested to me by a few people that that kind of 
amped up the pressure on the marshal service to wrap this thing up. Um, and cause, because it did get picked up by the national press at this point, at that point, and you know, there's like helicopters circling the house and Geraldo sends reporters out there and star magazine is there. So, you know, it's kind of attracting that kind of coverage, which it did seem to kind of shift the, um, you know, investigation into a more urgent mode. Mm-hmm. So, okay. So, uh, they, the fa- family surrenders, um, mm-hmm. and then there, there, there's a trial what happened? So can you talk a little bit about the trial? Yeah. the So the, the prosecutor, this guy named Ron Hohen, who I interviewed for the series, went really big with the indictment. I think it was like 16 counts. Randy was implicated in the murder. Like cons- he, this conspiracy charge that went back like 10 years based on like a newspaper interview that Randy gave then that kind of, you know, kind of a – braggadocious interview he gave in back in Iowa about uh, having like a house with a kill zone and, you know, just kind of talking big to a reporter back then. Anyway, it was like, he, he seems like he bit off more than he could chew, especially for a, a jury that ended up being really pretty sympathetic to Randy um, just because of what he had gone through. And then the, the defense attorney for Randy was this guy named Jerry Spence, who was another just larger than life character Um and kind of a famous trial lawyer who claimed to have never lost a case and this real kind of buckskin jacket wearing like smooth talking guy. He'd, he'd represented um, Karen Silkwood's family in that trial that ended up being a, there's a movie. And um, so Randy got, was acquitted of almost everything, even including even the gun charges, which pretty much everyone accepts that he actually did, but they ended up, it, it, it was entrapment basically. Um, so he, he served a few months in jail. Um, I think ba- I'm trying to remember based on maybe avoiding arrest or something like that. Kevin Harris, who, <clears throat> um, was, had been charged with shooting and killing the U S Marshal was also indicted. He just walked out of the courtroom. And so, yeah, it was a major, major victory for, for the defense and probably diffused the story, I mean, if you think about if they had been convicted, it would have become an even more powerful story on the far right. So it's kind of interesting to think about what might have happened there. But mm-hmm. uh, so how does yeah? So as you mentioned, Timothy McVeigh uh, was like incensed by uh, the story. Um, how what was the aftermath in terms of like the militia white nationalist movement of the nineties? Yeah, it's it's too simple to say that like the militia movement wouldn't have existed without Ruby Ridge, but it does seem like, I mean, within, within weeks, really, there are groups starting to meet like, okay, how do we protect ourselves if this happens here, when this happens here? Um, and some pretty major like white nationalist and militia meetings really using R- Ruby Ridge as um, a calling card, like we'll help you protect yourselves when that, when this happens. So it just becomes like a major talking point in those circles. And then again, Waco happening during the trial. I think those two events happening back to back um, just made a lot of people really fearful um, and galvanize them to, to organize. So. Um, yeah. So I, I just like thinking back to my like uh, childhood and in the nineties, like I remember <laughs> seeing stuff about militias um, on the news and you know, it's like a very, it was a very popular thing for like <laughs> news coverage back then yeah, you know, going yeah. out and, and following people who are like crawling through the, you know, forest or something and yeah. uh, talking about their beliefs. And then it, I don't know, it kind of seemed like, well, um, Oklahoma city city happened. 
Yeah. I, and then it like things kind of faded out, like or maybe people just stopped paying attention. I, I think Oklahoma City took a lot of the sting out of them. It would be interesting to see what it actually did to the numbers, but it certainly drove the movement underground for quite a while after that because it was so big and so ugly and it didn't I, I don't want to say it ever, that the militia movement ever like seemed fun, but it, but it made it so much darker than just like play acting in the woods. Right. Um, right. So yeah, I think that was a real, that was a real turning point that kind of drove that movement underground for a while. And now it, it seems kind of back now, but yeah. So I guess that was, that was another question. Um, it, I don't know. It, it's kind of like, so it went, so maybe in the later, late nineties, it went underground and then uh, more people get internet access. Um, and people can connect that way. And then nine 11 happens and the focus turns from, uh, you know, <laughs> white nationalist, uh, militias to, right. uh, Arabs and Muslims in our midst. And, uh, we, people kind of took their eye off or stopped paying any attention to, uh, the white nationalist movement, I think there was something where the Obama administration put out a, um, a report on like far right, uh, terrorist threats and it, it got this huge backlash, uh, from the GOP and conservatives. And I don't know if they withdrew it or, or what, but, uh, basically like people weren't paying attention to this at all. And then, um, uh, well, you tell me what happens, what happened next? Was it, is it Trump or is it something else? I mean, that's such a complicated, I don't know that I have a really tidy answer to that. Gun ownership and sort of pro-gun messaging rose under Obama because people were paranoid at that point that Obama would take their guns away. Then Trump enters the scene and kind of makes all this stuff acceptable to talk about in public. I mean, you're obviously like Charlottesville and, you know, you're seeing all this stuff where people are coming out of the woodwork and not being afraid to organize publicly and discuss publicly. And I think you're also seeing more reporting on kind of the dark corners of the internet that probably, you know, I I think we're seeing more, we're hearing about it more just because it's being reported on more, but it's also happening more. So um, yeah, I don't know the, the one, two punch of the, Obama era paranoia on the far right and then Trump coming and making all of that acceptable to um, sort of revel in publicly is it's a bad combination. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I was thinking like with the type of people who in 2016 were like identifying with the alt-right and posting memes online about like Jews being in ovens, like if they like 20 years earlier, would they have been like the militia people or they have just been like average people, more or less, with some maybe not so nice views, but they wouldn't have had any chance to like come into contact with each other or with like the uh, more virulent uh, anti-Semitic and racist ideas. That, it's a that's a really good question. I mean, even people like the Weavers who were not, I, I would say, were kind of like middle of the road racist or you know, they, were in that move, they were in that movement, but they weren't leaders. That's what I, I mean, that's what I want to say. They they were, they were clearly on the fringe of like American life, you know, the spectrum of all Americans, but within that fringe, um, they weren't leaders, but they had access to, you know, newsletters and tapes and they wrote away from the stuff. I mean, there, there's, it's not, um, it's not new to be able to, 
kind of get your hands on radicalizing materials. Although admittedly it's much, much easier now. Um, right. So yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, are you asking like ideologically or just um, access? Well, I guess more ideologically, like you think, you know, mm-hmm. uh, this idea that like YouTube, you know, exposes people to far right political ideas much more easily than they ever yeah. would have gotten on America online, which was, you know, what was <laughs> around back yeah. then. Um, and the, yeah, maybe, uh, people are, you know, they're really into video games and then something pisses them off about a particular video game thing and they start looking about it online and then they get involved in Gamergate and then they move to like more far right political stuff. Like there's no way that could have happened in the nineties. Yeah. yeah. Although there's, I mean, so maybe it's not the exact same cohort of people, but I think about the Weavers being first interested in theology and in end time stuff and in the book of Revelation and, um, you know, kind of apocalyptic thinking and even kind of like the the kind of interesting challenges of survivalism. So it, it's it's interesting for me to think about Vicky as a homemaker who is maybe kind of bored and, and like there's some interesting things about survivalism, right? That make kind of a project out of homemaking. All that to say that's kind of like their entryway into all this other stuff. And it's, you know, it, it is different from being annoyed by video games, but it's still, um, it's something on the edges of a bigger, darker, uglier thing that you dip your toe in and then suddenly you're in it. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, another difference I see, um, uh, you know, the Weavers wanted to live in a cabin in the middle of the woods by the, mm-hmm. you know, and pretty isolated, uh, versus the, the rally in Charlottesville, which was, yep. uh, you know, I don't know, like, would the Weavers have ever marched in a rally? Was that their kind of thing? No, I don't, I don't want, I mean, who knows in different circumstances and in a different time, but, um, the most they ever did that I'm aware of, or I think that anyone's aware of is they did go to a few of these Aryan world congresses. Um, but those were private events that was, it was sort of like a festival at this white nationalist, um, compound. Um, and that's obviously quasi public and that you're getting together with a whole bunch of people, but it's not like a political, you know, they're not there with with signs making political arguments they're there to socialize. So, um, yeah, I don't, I don't think they would have been there. Yeah. It does. It does seem like a contrast between kind of like isolation, yeah. leave us alone. Um, you know, don't tread on me kind of stuff versus yeah. like in your face, uh, you know, Jews should die. <laughs> that, that, that kind of stuff. Um, yeah. and yeah. like Charlottesville is a, you know, it's a university town in a blue state and that's when it, where yeah. they decided to have the rally. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great point. Um, so what is, so, okay, so what did the, uh, government learn from this disaster that, um, you know, meant that a similar, a similar situation would be less likely to happen again? Yeah, I think they just took, I mean, they just really pumped the brakes when it came to similar standoffs. And I think we're, we're much, much likelier to just let these things ride out indefinitely um, and let the kind of, um, it, you know, assuming that a lot of these people involved in these standoffs are kind of itching for violence. I, I don't want to say that was the case in the Weavers case, but, um, you know, some of the standoffs with much more aggressive militia types. So there was one in Montana a few years after that, that they just like let go for a long, long time. Um, there's another one. This is a little bit of a different case because it's not the federal government, but this case in Texas where a guy was kind of in a, like a self-imposed 
self-declared standoff after um, a traffic stop for years and years and years. And they just, they just left him alone. So the Bundys too, um, again, that's a slightly more complicated situation, but um, in that scenario, the government, you know, gave up a lot, you know, I think in some ways could, could, you could say they like lost the conflict with the Bundys, but at the expense of, you know, ending that somewhat peacefully. So, um, yeah. Yeah, and there's a um, there's a podcast series yeah. about the Bundys. It's, it's really great. Yeah, yeah it's called Bundy. Bundyville. So check it out if you have any interest in that story. It does this. Uh, the the um, do you have an idea or any thoughts on why um, podcast as a form like embrace this this kind of <laughs> this kind of story and other like cry, telling crime procedural stuff is like the are, oh some of the most popular stuff for for like serialized podcast storytelling. Yeah. Um... I mean, there's so many, just from a really practical point of view, there's so, um, I mean, they're very dramatic. There's these, there are these like tight little dramatic narratives. Um, and then there's also just a lot of audio. So like it, it's just from like a production point of view, there's like a lot of news coverage when the thing happens and then there's like trial coverage, um, and a lot of these are recent enough that, you know, you can still find people to, to talk about them. And so there's like, there's a variety of, um, you know, audio archival stuff that you can pull in. And I, but I also think they're, um, you know, sort of novel worthy, like they're, they're great little, they're great dramas. So I, I feel a little squishy sometimes about some of the true crime stuff personally. Um, I just think, with all of this stuff, you just have to be really careful how you handle it because you don't want it to be like, tune in next week to see who dies. And it, you know, you just want to be, yeah. it, it, it just, it, it's really important to remember that it is like real people's lives and these are real things that happened. And, um, it, that's, that's just trying to, yeah, always be careful about being sensitive about that. But the reason, yeah, it's just, they're, they're just, they are really compelling stories. So. Okay, before, is there anything else you want to say about Standoff or Ruby Ridge before we switch to our exciting <laughs> second topic? Um, no, I just would encourage people to listen to it if they're interested. So I, I do think, you know, it's, it's about two hours total. You can, you can binge it now. And then there's, there also, I should plug Slate Plus, um, if you're a subscriber to Slate Plus, which is like 35 bucks a year. Um, or 35 bucks for the first year. Um, but there's four bonus episodes with interviews with, um, scholars and Tara Westover, who wrote this book, Educated, that, um, is sort of partly about how Ruby Ridge affected her childhood in rural Idaho with a survivalist family who the story loomed really large for. Anyway, so there's oh, some, yeah, yeah. there's some kind of bonus content for if you subscribe to Slate Plus. So I should plug that too, but that's all. Um, Cool. Okay. So second topic, uh, <laughs> yeah. you wrote, you're, we're excited about this one. You, and actually my cat just emerged from another room. Uh -oh. so maybe, maybe weigh in on this one because it involves, uh, a lot of people actually thought I was a cat owner. They were like, Oh, she must be a cat person. So okay. Like, yeah. So the article <laughs> ran in slate, uh, December 3rd, the headline is don't spend your emotional energy on Sully HW Bush. Subhead. He's a service dog who had been with the president for six months, not his lifelong companion. Okay. So, the background on this is there, um, as George H.W. Bush, uh, it was announced that, I guess, you know, late in his life, he acquired a service dog named Sully, a yellow lab. 
um, the dog had like a Instagram account and other things like this. And the dog's name Sully. And, um, and then, uh, after, uh, President Bush passed away, um, a, uh, one of the, he's like the publicist or the, yeah, I, I forget the title. He's like communications, like the PR. Guy. Guy. Yeah. Yeah. The guy who hand, handles press for, for, yeah. the, uh, Bush, uh, named Jim McGrath took a photo and sent it out of, uh, which we'll link to of, uh, the casket, um, that Bush's body was in, uh, covered in an American flag and Sully, the dog, uh, kind of curled up in front of it, um, looking, uh, well, I guess it, the, the <laughs> open to interpretation, the way this dog looks could be sleepy, uh, could, could be sad, um, could be resigned to thinking about death and, uh, the fate of all living things. Um, <laughs> And it went, it went through, I actually, I retweeted this just because I thought it was a great photo. Like, it is, yeah, yeah, it's beautifully composed. It's almost as if it were designed to be, <laughs> it looks like someone set it up, but who could say? <laughs> yeah, well, well, no, I guess we'll never know. And then you, so then, yeah, so why did you, <laughs> why did you want to write, uh, a, a write about this? <laughs> well, I saw the photo go around and I was just sort of like, it, it seemed to actually have so little content that I was just amazed at people being like, I'm crying looking at this photo. And like, oh, he's, you know, you can tell he's missing his master, like a hero at rest. Jeb Bush was like, Sully's got the watch. And just this kind of like over the top sentimental reaction to this. And also like imputing all of this like reading so much into this picture, which I just think to me that is interesting. Like when, when something like this becomes such a huge public moment and it's just like a scrap of information. I mean, literally it's a picture of the dog lying down and it's possible that the dog is sad or that he knows what's going on, but it's also possible that he's like a very well-trained dog who I, I did not say this in the piece, but who like possibly was told to lie down there or was just lying down because dogs lie down. Like we just, we have no idea. This is so much less than like, you see pictures of like the dog bounding toward a service member returning from war or something. And even that, I kind of feel like we don't really know, but at least there's like quite a bit of information there where you can kind of see like a response. This is, it's a photograph of the dog lying down. And I just, I just thought it was like kind of worth, um, you know, it's not the biggest deal in the world at all, but it just, I was sort of felt like it might be worth inserting a moment of skepticism into, into this moment of just immense, apparently immense grief upon seeing the dog's grief. Right. Yeah. There's, yeah, there's so, there's a lot here <laughs> we could talk about if we want to. So yeah, well, I guess, I, I guess I, I'm, you know, I share some of your skepticism. It's like, why were they just letting the dog walk around the coffin? Like what, you know, what if he knocked it over or something? Like what, what is it? What exactly is happening here? Usually done that. He's a loyal, heroic dog. <laughs> well, what if he wanted to jump into the coffin or something? Because he loves George H.W. Bush so much. Like it just, it's usually dogs are not left unattended where yeah. a dead body is, you know, in the same room as a dead body. Um, okay. So, uh, <laughs> Although so, after this, he's been and they trotted him out to the rotunda and they trotted him out on the red carpet. And I, although I don't think that those opportunities would have arisen for Sully if not for this viral moment. So I, he became kind of a celebrity after this. But. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Sully has really hit the viral jackpot here. He can really <laughs> yeah. choose his next project, whatever he wants to do. Um, but yeah, so I mean, I think I think it's interesting because we've become like so sentimental 
like we, we used to be as a society, maybe like like children were the thing we were most sentimental about. But dogs have definitely replaced children as the thing yeah. that we're most sentimental about. Um, part of this is because of the uh, we rate dogs account that says that all dogs are good and all yes. dogs deserve a rating above ten. Um, I yeah. think, and there's just a general, and that has you don't deserve dogs and all the language. It's so interesting to see it. Like what a good doggo and a pupper and all this stuff. We're just like, I mean, it's fine. It's harmless, like internet nonsense, but it is, it's like become dogs are sacred in some way. Yeah. Yeah. And it used to be, I mean, there was an article that, uh, a video actually that Amanda Hess put out over the summer that was about dogs versus cats online. It used to be that, uh, you know, it, around like 1998, what would you, what would you do online? You would like look at pictures of cats, um, and that was a bit, that was all you could do. Whereas now, like dogs rule online, and what does that say about us as a, as a society? Um, yeah. So, and then there's like the projection of emotion onto dogs, which everybody does, um, and you know we can't really know what they're thinking. It's inscrutable in some ways. We can tell when they're like excited about things or when they want something. Um, I should mention now that. <clears throat> My wife is a uh, animal uh, behaviorist and dog and cat trainer at an animal shelter. Oh wow! So I have maybe a, a well, more very biased. Yeah, yeah I have a more. I'm being ambushed in this interview. Well, I have a more scientific um, take on it than the average person who is just like, "Oh, well, dogs are good." Well, it's like, no, there are some dogs that aren't good. There are some yeah. dogs that do bad things. There are dogs that uh, hurt people. It's not like it's the dog's fault that it hurts a person. Right. Um, but well, it's amazing. Like you, we we like lard up the dogs with all these human characteristics, and like even I think like calling a dog a hero is really interesting because it implies some sort of like knowledge that they're about to like like it's like giving them a lot of moral agency, but then they're also like purer than us and better than us, and they're all <laughs> they're all better than humans. It's like it's a complicated it's a complicated message. Like like not like Hitler had a dog. Like what does that mean? You know, dogs just are around the people they're around and like do their dog thing and they don't have that kind of moral agency. I, I don't know. Anyway. Right. So yeah. So the, yeah, the hero dog who maybe like runs into a burning, right. willing to alert the firefighters that there's an infant in there, you know, it could say like, well, th- you know, that dog did something extraordinary, uh, heroic. It's hard to say, did the dog know what it was doing? Uh, right. I doubt that dogs really have a sense of mortality. Um, right. And could the dog, like, did the dog know that its friend George H.W. Bush wasn't, wasn't there anymore? Like, sure. Um, maybe the dog, you know, uh, well, I don't know. The dog uh, can sense through smell that maybe something that kind of smells like George H.W. Right. Bush is in the vicinity, but who knows about right. that? Um, and yeah. And then I guess, you know, you know, we're in a way that uh, we're allowed to express emotions about the world that we normally wouldn't if we're able, if we're able to express it uh, about an animal or through, through an animal. Um, all that being said, um, there is something special about dogs. I think it does like the, the like dog human connection seems to be different than the um, human cat connection. Uh, mm-hmm. Showing one cat right here who won't stop annoying me all through this recording. Very rude to the cat. <laughs> um, and I don't know if my wife would agree. Feeling, I can see in her eyes that she's deeply wounded by that. Um, if I if if I left this realm of te- this veil of tears, I don't know if this cat would would really feel that bad about it. Although I, this cat is a very nice creature, um, and certainly uh, seems to like me <laughs> a great deal. Um, but yeah, but the dog connection, like it does, like it does seem different to me in some way that, it, that is like, like quasi mystical or 
in a way that we can't quite understand. Like, why why do the dogs do these do these things? Whereas right. it seems like I think it's more likely that a cat is going to eat you if you yeah, yeah. fall over dead than if than your dog is going to eat you. Mm-hmm. Uh, the dog is very very excited to see you if you come home at the end of the day. Um, and yeah, like are are doggos good? Are they all good boys? Like, part of me is like this is total bullshit, and the other part of me is is like. Our dog's the only pure thing on earth. <laughs> like everything else is corrupted in some way. But, uh, you know, the dog just wants to love you and eat food and have fun and, uh, you know, be warm at night and curl up. Um, and <laughs> those are all, those are all like fine things. Meal. Yeah. Okay. So what, what was the reaction <laughs> to this, to this piece? And were, were you expecting a reaction? Like, and what was the reaction actually like? Yeah. I, I mean, I was expecting that not everyone would (laughs) agree with me or be happy to hear this for sure. Um, That's part of what is kind of fun about writing a piece like that is kind of like knowing that it will generate conversation and, you know, even backlash and sure. Um, So if you write something unexpected or against the grain, like that's part of the deal. I did not (laughs) know just the incredible avalanche of feedback. It was such a wild few days. It was really fun. Um, 99% of it was fun. Um, there was some like creepy Facebook stuff that was less fun, but, um, yeah, I mean, and I actually found that like more fascinating because to me, the piece was kind of like a, like a little huh moment. You know, I wasn't trying to make some really grand point. It was like, okay, here's this kind of like viral moment of sentimentality. And like, let's just, let's pause and think about it for a moment. The backlash has like actually made me want to write about it in a bigger way because it's just, I, I it is, it was wild. The, the anger, like the, the really, really pure rage of people who were, you know, really, really bothered by one person, you know, questioning whether or not we know exactly what's going on in a photo. And I'm not trying to be naive, like, I wrote this. You're allowed to respond to it. It's fine. I'm not saying people shouldn't respond um, or that they, you know, it's fine to disagree, but the volume and just the, the anger of the response among dog owners was really something. Um, And I really try not to psychoanalyze uh, reader responses. So I'll leave it at that. (laughs) Right. So what, if you had to give like a ratio positive versus negative feedback, what what would you say? It was overwhelmingly (laughs) negative, (laughs) but you know, I have to say like, and I want to be sensitive about it, but it was, it, I didn't take any of it seriously. I'm sorry to all the many, many, many people who tweeted at me and emailed me and sent me LinkedIn messages. (laughs) Like, like, I just, I, I just, I, I got it. I got enough private and and some and public responses from people who I consider like smart thoughtful people like the the ratio of like people I take seriously saying positive things to people I've never heard of and seem a little unbalanced saying negative things and there's plenty of room for like smart people to disagree of course but I this was just a case where like by definition, if you're kind of losing your mind over a piece like this, like it, it's kind of easy for me to dismiss that. I mm-hmm. just to be frank. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. What well, was it? Is this the most feedback you've ever gotten from a piece? I think so. I, a few years ago, I wrote a piece about adults reading YA literature that was the 
was number one until now, but I, yeah, I would say, and, and it's official dog people are much angrier than YA readers. <laughs> so, okay. So uh, since you, uh, since you write for Slate, going on there. <laughs> well, since you write for Slate, I'm assuming that you wrote a takedown of adult reading YA literature. Um, yeah, I, I, it was called against YA and yeah, it was, uh, it was, it was, uh, you know, I would say just questioning the phenomenon of adult readers spending a lot of time reading literature that's written for teenagers. So I won't, I won't relitigate that one now, but yeah, that was before now that was the most provocative thing I'd, I'd said, but this, I think this, this one is number one now. <laughs> well, I mean, there seems to be a kind of thematic link between these two things that pr- provoked outrage, which is like, uh, feelings associated with childhood, um, yeah. and sentimentality. Yeah, um, that's good. Uh, yeah, I hadn't, I hadn't like kind of linked them. And both of them is sort of like me performing this curmudgeon role of being like, <laughs> grow up, stop <laughs> taking pleasure in this innocent, you know, in this innocent thing that's diverting you for a few minutes. So, <laughs> um, so I, in this, I in this cold, harsh world. Stick. <laughs> Yeah, uh, so uh, that hits people. <laughs> that hit, yeah. hit, hits people where they live when you go after their dogs and their YA literature. Yeah. I mean, I just I'm of two minds with it. Like, I'm I'm surprised the the blowback you got, and I don't know. Maybe there's a lot of people who had very strong feelings about George H. W. Bush himself that <laughs> wasn't aware of. I, you know, there, so there was. A, it, I definitely got feedback for, along the political spectrum, um, but a good chunk of it was um, conservative who seemed to read this as somehow related to George H. W. Bush. Which, I, I mean, I don't. I. I will never be able to assure those people of this, but I, I would have written this about a democratic president. It honestly had nothing to do with George HW Bush as a man or a president or like it, it just really was not about him, but it got picked up. You know, it was on like Fox's website. The daily caller called me like the, dog bitch or I something found, like I, when i was googling this i found this i don't know if you saw this when i googled this the first time um there's another ruth graham out there the widow of franklin graham oh yeah mm-hmm. she put up a statement on her website saying she wasn't the ruth graham who wrote she about did? george hw's dog oh my gosh i have to look that up that is so you know i've been waiting so long for her to acknowledge me and i I have mixed feelings right now finding out that it's coming through this moment, but that is so funny. But that shows you the volume because if that's reaching her, because I've written about the Graham family before and reported on them. And, um, you know, I always say I'm not related to them. I'll just say that for the record now, but um, just to be clear about it. But it's just funny that this is the thing that like bubbled up to her consciousness that, uh, wow, I have to find that. <laughs> yeah. So you can frame that, uh, <laughs> that I little will. post she did. Well. Yeah. I mean, it's just, <laughs> I, I think maybe, maybe part of what the like magic sauce in this witch's brew was is yeah. it combined dogs and death and we're yeah. very sentimental yeah. about both things um yeah. you know george h.w bush he was 95 94 95 like yeah. if you live yeah. over 85 and you die like it's sad for the family members yeah. but it's kind of like okay like this is gonna happen to all of us and you yeah. lived a very long time and he got to do yeah. a lot of stuff and he like you know jumped out of airplanes and yeah he fought in a war and he was president and he gave birth to some mediocre sons and he did all this, all this stuff. Like, do we really need to be like this, like sentimental and sad about this old man dying? Like, I don't, you know, I don't yeah. think so. And then you bring the dog in and it's like, yeah. you know, the double mammy of, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So <laughs> I, I, maybe, now I know better. 
I mean, I don't know. I would, I would, I would write it again in a heartbeat. I have no regrets about writing it, but it certainly is like, it, it was, it was, uh, instructive. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's always, one of the things that people really care about and uh, dogs, <laughs> dogs are one of them. Um, yeah. so speaking of that, I have a dog downstairs who probably needs to go outside. Um, yeah. you've given us about an hour of your time. So I thank you uh, very oh, yeah. much for that. Yeah. Um, so you're, so, uh, the, you're, you're a writer at Slate. The, uh, podcast is called Standoff. Yeah. Um, We'll include links to those things below. Uh, I believe you're also on Twitter. Um, and what, what's your Twitter handle? It's at Public Road. Yeah. So you must have been I, one of those early people on Twitter. I was. It's, didn't I think it's been years ago now. I started it for a road trip, and it's from a Walt Whitman. Uh, it's from the Song of the Open Road, and of course now it's just linked to me forever. I wish I could. I think probably probably Billy Graham's uh, daughter is at Ruth Graham. I don't know, but anyway. <laughs> Anyway, okay, so, public road. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, uh, thank you for taking the time and coming on. Yeah. Um, thank thanks, you. thanks to all of our viewers and listeners, and we'll see you next time. <laughs> Before you go, a quick message from the suits at Blogging Heads TV. Blogging Heads will always be free for you to watch and listen to, and we don't even go the NPR route of guilting you into donating during Pledge Week. But we do have a small request: if you enjoy Blogging Heads programming, rate and review us on iTunes. The iTunes algorithm weighs positive reviews heavily, so taking a few minutes to rate and review us will help more people find out about our shows. Also, of course, we encourage you to subscribe to our Twitter and Facebook feeds. Thank you.